and invite you, uh, if, if you have them, to turn in your Bibles or look on the screens behind me to our Old Testament reading this morning, Genesis uh, chapter 11, and we'll read at the end of chapter 11 uh, into verse 12. This is entitled, uh, The Call of Abram. Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of, of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. And then chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Morah, Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, Go to your, off go, uh, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Gracious Father, there are so many voices uh, that we hear in a given week. So many ideas. Uh, there are joys and burdens upon us. And Lord, we ask that in this moment uh, you might silence in us any voice but your own. That we might hear your word as you will for it to be heard for our lives. Comfort us where we need comfort. Challenge us where we need challenge. Guide us where we need guidance. Support us where we need support. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous novel written in uh, 2020 called The Promise. It was won an award in 2020 called The Promise. The novel is set in South Africa. Actually, Pastor Hilmer is going to South Africa soon, so didn't mean to tie. Near Pretoria. The novel follows an extended family over a 40-year period, four different decades. And the novel starts with uh, this family living near Pretoria on a kind of a homestead, <coughs> pardon me, and they have mother, father, three children, and they have various workers on the homestead. One of them is a black woman who is on staff with this family. And in the first chapter of this book, the mother of the family dies. And the smallest kid uh, of the family uh, experiences a mother die, dies, goes through a moment of grief, and here's the father speaking with the rest of the family in that 
first moment after she dies, they're, they're talking about what's happened, what's the future going to look like. And the, and the younger uh, daughter hears the father make a promise that if anything should ever happen to his wife, the mother, that the housekeeper, Salome, the person on staff in the house, will receive uh, a small house on the property to live in the rest of her life and be sustained the rest of her life. Nothing happens, though, with that house, with that promise after the mother dies. The novel goes forward 10 years, and the father of the family dies. And they're all gathered in, the, in, in a situation hearing uh, the father's uh, will and testament. And the kids are a bit older. The youngest kid who heard that promise to Salome is in the room. And she asks, now that mother has died and father has died, will the promise to give Salome that house, that settled place on our homestead, be honored? And nothing happens with the promise. It remains out there. And somebody makes a vague comment that it'll be fulfilled. In the third decade of the book, uh, the oldest child of that family, uh, who was kind of now in charge of the family, uh, we hear about him, and he goes through some difficulties in his life, in fact, and he eventually passes away at an early age. And again, who's left of the family gathers, and they talk about the future of the household and what's going to happen with all the land and the homestead. And the youngest child, whose name is Amor, love, who heard the promise, asks again, what about the promise to Salome and the settled place? And the promise goes off and nothing happens. And finally, the second to last kid in the last chapter of the book, 40 years later in the life of this extended family, has a major difficulty in their life and uh, passes away. And again, Amore asks at the end, what will happen to the promise? And what you find in the book is the broken promise, the unfulfilled promise, becomes a source of pain, uh, regret for all the children in that family, the promise that was made, the promise that was out there for a settled place is not kept. And we see through 40 years, four decades in this wonderful novel, the power and the pain of broken promises. Well, I'd like to embark with you, invite you to embark with me on a journey this morning, uh, a new series that we'll be looking at over seven weeks in the summer, different kind of Sundays, but the next four, called Promises Made and promises kept. And I want to say that the good news of the gospel is that we hear in the Bible is that we have a God who is a God of promises. Uh, not a God of, 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 of broken promises, but a God who makes promises in this world that can be so ragged and difficult and untrustworthy and maybe you've experienced that in your own life recently. But we serve a God and know a God who makes promises and who keeps them. Well, in the first uh, part of the series, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12, the one I just read. And we meet a very interesting family. 
And the story starts uh, with Abram and Sarah. I'll call them Abraham and Sarah, but their names change, and we'll get into that later. We'll just call them Abraham and Sarah. The story kind of starts with them. And as we consider those figures in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham gets mentioned, and Sarah later in the Bible as well. What we find is when when you look at the whole story of the Bible, it's hard to find a more important figure Uh, in the Bible besides Jesus Christ than Abraham. When God reveals himself to uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, God says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the God of Abraham. In fact, line up all the great figures of the Old Testament. Uh, You might look at, at, at Moses, who was a lawgiver. You might look at David, the wonderful king. You might look at Elijah, the greatest prophet. But every single one of them would say, Abraham is my father. Go to the New Testament. Paul's trying to explain the glorious wonders of what God has done in Jesus Christ uh, on the cross, the sacrifice he's given, uh, the, the wonderful accomplishment of the eternal son of God giving his life on the cross and what that means for you and for me as we put our faith in Christ and not in other things. By the, by the grace of God. And who does Paul turn to as an example? All throughout the New Testament of justification by faith alone, he turns to Abraham. Well, in this passage this morning, Genesis chapter 12, I'd like us to look at three different aspects. We'll break it down in three different ways. Uh, promises made, promises kept. We'll look at God's promises. God's promises are powerful. We learn that God's promises are particular and God's promises are performative. Yes, they're all three Ps. I, was, I keep doing that, but it helps me remember where we're headed in these, in these moments. So the first one, God's promises are powerful. Starting in uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 31, we are introduced to this whole extended family, uh, Terah, son Abraham, uh, we Lot, Sarai. And what we need to understand as we come to these, and if you just are able to, if, you, if you're thumbing through your Bible or have it in front of you, you can kind of see where we are in the whole story of, of Scripture. But by the time we come to Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to Terah and Abraham, Lot, this whole family living off in Ur quite far away, and they're, they've been, they're journeying a little bit north up to Haran. But what we find up to this point in the Bible, human history has been kind of spinning kind of downward or in the you know the movie Top Gun when there's that jet kind of goes off and then one gets caught in the jet stream and the other jet's kind of spinning like a tailspin sideways through space if you have seen that movie uh, it's like humanity is in this tailspin up to this point in the Bible God has created the world good male and female he's given them, them a wonderful uh, command to go out But since then, things have actually gone pretty badly for the world history. There's murder that comes into the scene. Uh, There's the story of Noah. When when, when God looks out upon the world that he's made, he says, almost every heart is inclined to evil. What's going on here? Then there's a story of the Tower of Babel when people are gathered around not to uh, praise the name of the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, but what? To make a great name for themselves. I mean, things are not going well in the history of humanity, theologically, spiritually speaking, up to this point. The whole thing is coming to a dead end. And the theologian Walter Brueggemann, one of the most prolific kind of Old Testament scholars uh, in the last century anyway, writes about this chapter and he says, 
Humanity at this point has no foreseeable future. And there's no future for the history of humanity at this point except for this this dim comment at the end of Genesis chapter 4 and this dim family light of Shem where it says people still call on the name of the Lord but this dimly forgotten family line, a group of people to whom the knowledge of the one true God had been made known. History was spinning. Abraham and had ended up in, in Terry and Ur, the center of moon worship at that time. The famous death pits of the, of the queen of uh, the people at that time where there were gold and silver and all matter of civilization set before them, but worshiping not the one true God. But what's left and what what, the, what, this, what, the, what, what we come to at the end of the, this section, verses 31 and 32, is that there's a turning point. There's a pivot point for humanity. There's a link between where things have gone spinning off so badly and to a future. And that link is the living God speaking. That link is God stepping into history anew and afresh. It's a divine intervention that changes the course of Humanity, theologically, spiritually, and in many other ways because of that. This downward spiral is stopped and a a new way of hopefulness is opened up. Because God speaks and God makes a promise. You ever feel like your life is uh, in a downward spiral? You ever feel like there's this stuff going on in our lives and we can't quite get a hold of it? It's kind of out of our control a little bit. Every single one of us as part of the human race experiences this. We, we go in directions we don't want to go. There's powers at work on us that we, we feel we don't want them to be at work on this. This is the power of sin, of course, and death that each one of us experiences and has to face in this world, in the journey of this world. And if you're experiencing a downward spiral in your life right now or someone you love is, I hope that you will take these verses from Genesis as as hopeful, as good news, as gospel. That there is a God who is not just going to leave you or your life to, to spin this way or that way, but there is a God who has made you, who loves you, who is the maker of heaven and earth, who is personal, who is able A God who speaks, a God who steps in, a God who's powerful, more powerful than any problem we may have, any concern we may have. If things look dim around us, look here to this situation and ask yourself, are promises the foundation of my life? And if they aren't, maybe this morning you can be invited to consider the promises of God for yours. The second thing we learn here comes at the beginning of chapter 12, and it's that God's promises are particular. God doesn't make a vague kind of promise. God doesn't kind of just say general things to Abraham and Sarah. God's pretty direct and pretty specific. God's promises are particular. We'll talk about the promise of place, the promise of purpose, and the promise of protection in this section. The promise of place, the promise of purpose, and the promise of protection in these verses. God's promises are particular. 
It's a lot of P's, eh? I'm doing pretty well with these. Listen now. God makes this very specific set of promises to Abraham. But look how it starts. It starts with this command. The Lord had said to him, I, was, well, I think that's had said is, is perhaps back in this journey from Ur to Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And that's a, that, that kind of cuts both ways, that, that kind of command, that promise to this place I'll show you. Because what, what is God asking? What is God commanding here? What is God calling Abraham to do? Well, he's calling him to leave uh, the country that uh, is his own with a, with, with a country God will give him, uh, a new country. He's asking him to leave the people that are his own for a people that God will provide for him. He's asking uh, him to leave his father's household and all of that security for the security that God will give him. This is... Uh, how every spiritual life starts, every life of faith starts this way, with a call from God. And the call here is unusual and strange as we read it because God doesn't say where Abraham will be going. He just says, go. And in Hebrew, it's get you out. It's kind of doubled in there. It's like really, really go. And, and God just says to Abraham, move on, go, go, go. And God doesn't give anything specific about where he's gonna go. Abraham might say, you know, can I, can I put this in my ways? Can I get the GPS out? Can I, can I map for this thing, Lord? Or what, what, what can happen? No, the Lord just says, go to the place where I will show you. And so we have this, 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 this promise that, that, that God is giving Abraham, which is really couched in this idea that God's promises are, are, are like that for us, aren't they? That God, we, we hear the promises of God. We read the promises of God in Scripture. But there's this gap sometimes as to how they're really going to play out in your life, in my life, that we always may don't experience right away. And Abraham's experiencing the life of faith, the call of faith that God gives every one of us in Jesus Christ. Now, this call, as you, as you look at it, these promises, as you look at that, they're couched in blessing. The word blessing is used five times they're couched in God's assertiveness. That word, I will, I will, I will, happens over and over again. And God is stepping into human history. God is stepping in through Jesus Christ to your life and to my life. God is stepping into the world, has stepped into the world by his initiative and by his blessing. In fact, God's blessing is the agenda, his agenda for reclaiming the initiative and stepping into the rebellion, into the sin, into the brokenness of the world and reversing it and addressing it. And he gives three, as I said, particular kind of promises. The first one we read about is the promise of a place. The promise of a place. It'll be, it'll be a land, but it'll also be a place within a people. Uh, go to a place, a land I'll show you. Also, I'll make you into a great nation. You'll, you'll have a people to be a part of. Now, as you read the Bible, Luke chapter 24, we find that Jesus himself, in that story, interprets uh, the Old Testament from Moses to the prophets and tells them everything concerning himself. So, as we're reading this promise, we need to understand that all of this points to Jesus. This whole story of Abraham and Sarah, all the things in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus. And so this promise that Abraham gets about a place is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus, a place of rest, a place of security, a, a place amongst a people, a place of community, a place of blessing from God. 
a place we see by the, by, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is a, available to us in the church, in the body of Christ, that the promise is, is for Abraham, made known through Jesus, now seen in the church for the fact that we are not to live our lives alone, alien, abandoned, but to journey and accompany one another, to uphold one another, to, to, be, to be on this journey together as Christians, but yet sinners and saved by grace. And this is a promise of place, the ultimate, of course, promise of place. This promise goes all the way to where? The new Jerusalem, the new Zion, the new creation. Uh, that, that, that promise of a new heaven and a new earth, this ultimate place where through faith in Jesus Christ we'll find our greatest rest. And the second promise that God gives Abraham here, but the particular side of it is the promise of purpose. The promise of purpose I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It's a purpose. It's a a missional kind of purpose, isn't it? You hear that word thrown around the church sometimes, missional. It's a missional purpose. God is calling Abraham. This promise will be seen all the way through to the work of Jesus through Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles will be drawn into the promises of God. Why? All of this will be for an outward invitation, an outward working of the grace of God in the world. If we want to grow as Christians, if we want to grow as people, followers of Jesus, we need to understand that we have a purpose, a very particular purpose, a, very, a, a, a purpose couched in this promise that our lives, first and foremost, are not if you read this story and the story of Scripture, our lives are not first and foremost for, for, for ourselves. God doesn't give us what we need, our brains, our bodies, our jobs, or whatever, so that we can serve first ourselves. Life is not about acquiring more and more things until we have a certain achievement. It's about giving ourselves away to God, isn't it? Why? To be a blessing to others. One theologian I read a little while ago, can't remember their name, put it this way. If you live your life uh, for yourself, for your own ends first, for your own goals first, what will happen at the end of of your life, it'll be like you, you go to the safe of your life, you go to open it up. You think there'll be glorious things in there because you've lived so well for yourself. But you'll open the safe of your life and look in, and all you will find are ashes. That's the crazy upside downness of the Christian life, isn't it? The call of Jesus. Even the life of Jesus himself to which this story points. Leaving heaven, emptying himself. And what we find, this promise to Abraham is a promise for you and me. As you're choosing your school, as you're choosing your next job, as you're choosing spouses, as you're, as you're making decisions in your lives, remember that the Christian life is a call, an invitation, a promise to be a blessing to others, to give ourselves away by the power of Christ for the glory of God. And then finally, that particular promise at the end is um, not only place, not only purpose, but it's a promise of protection. It's a strange thing. Uh, I, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. 
That's a bit of a hard thing to hear, isn't it, in church? We don't only hear a curse, that word curse in church. What does that mean? How do we read about that? Well, in a way, that promise, uh, again, made known through Jesus Christ, is a, a promise of protection for your life, for mine, for the, the life of God's people. Jesus Christ, though he has died for us and he has ascended, he still stands in the middle of your life and my life with his shepherd's staff, the one we might read about in Psalm 23, to guide, protect, and direct us. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ, we, we, are, we are called as we look to Christ and live in the world, we are, we are called to remember the protection of God upon his truth and upon his way and upon his vision for the world. It's a very famous story about Bulgaria in the Second World War. And writers have written about this, saying that Sofia, the capital city, although it was part of the war, Second World War, not one single Jew was taken from there to a, a camp or sent out to be done away with as part of the Holocaust. And there's a famous story that one night in midnight in Sofia, Bulgaria, in the Second World War, uh, the, uh, the army of the Germans had rounded up many Jews in that city at midnight so that no one would find out to put them on the trains that they were using to take them out of the city to certain death. And that night, uh, Metropolitan Carol, who was the leader of the church uh, in Sofia, Bulgaria, took about 100 other people from his church in the middle of the night and walked down to the train station where the army was rounding up these people made in the image of God and they came to a gate that was closed and the colonel of the regiment there yelled at the, the, the priest, Metropolitan Carol, and said, you can't come in here because they wanted to go in and prevent the train from leaving. And uh, Metropolitan Carol heard that command, I can't go in here, and he turned around and he looked at his congregation and he laughed. <laughs> he said, do you hear them? They say, we can't go in here. And he opened the gate and he walked in with other Christians the church in that city, and he brought safety to others. It's something for us to consider in this day and age in the church when we're living in this postmodern kind of world and society, even a post-Christian society, many would say. What does it mean for us to be the church? What does it mean to know that God is strong, that God is able, that God is protecting us, that God is leading us? What does that mean? How do we, how do we hold the, the strength of God with, with humility? We need to remember that Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which is to say from your own life and thinking to, to the work of the church here and around the world, remember the promise that this is not meant to be seen, the church, as any other community or club in the world, but one at whom the center is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the giver of life, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. And he was moving his people forward in blessing and protection. Well, finally, we, we see the promises of God are powerful, they're particular. And finally, we see the promises of God are performative. That is, the promises of God do something. They don't just kind of sit out there and, and, and nothing goes on. They, they, they're, 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 they're performative. There's an actionableness to them. There's a there's a movement to them. They, 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 they cause things. They're actionable. God's promises are performative. And we see this in the next few verses. Chapter 4, 
to the end, actually, we see this. And we see that Abraham hears these promises of God and things happen. First thing is, uh, they cause him to go. The second thing is, they cause him to give gratitude. In verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him to go. Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Abraham goes, not on his own wisdom, not on his own idea, but he goes on what? The word of God. He doesn't go on what others are telling him to do necessarily. He doesn't go on his, necessarily his own family situation, all of which are important, but he goes here first and foremost based on what the Lord has said to him. He goes by faith, not by sight. I mean, God is saying, go, leave this rich kind of land, this civilization where he's used to things, where everything's wonderful in many, many ways, where everything's good, where he's, where, where he's settled. And he's saying to him, Abraham, go not by faith, what well, you can see, but go, not by sight, but go by faith. And we see Abraham going, as theologians call on the, on, on the naked word of God, on the bare word of God. God has said, go, and Abraham hears it. It touches his heart. It moves him. He receives it in faith, and he goes. And he casts all his care that he might have upon, not upon his own life or upon his own abilities, but on God's providence, upon God's goodness. We see him resting deep in the arms of God. And Abraham goes as the Lord tells him. And we see in this going an encouragement for us that there may be things in our life that we're trying to discern. What is God saying to me? What, what must I do? What is God calling me to do? And we see here so beautifully and so wonderfully Abraham simply giving this all over to God, putting God first, making his whole life subject to what? God's word. The regulation of his life is, is done by the outward, by the promise of God. He calls, God calls him and he holds onto that promise. Well, how do we, and the second thing, he goes, and the second, and the second part of the performance side of the qualities are that uh, Abraham gives gratitude. And we see this in the next part. He goes and he gives gratitude. Well, he travels through the land in verse 6, and he, what does he do? He sets up these altars in the land. Kind of a strange thing to do. How do we, what do we do with this word, this, these altars, this idea of, of Abraham setting them up? He goes two places, in fact. He goes to uh, one place, he goes to is the Mora, and he sets up an altar there. Mora is, uh, was, a, was a famous uh, great tree there in the religion of the time. The leaves would rustle on that tree and soothsayers would gather and they would interpret the sounds of the leaves on that tree and then give some kind of a divine oracle on, on kind of what life is about, what should happen. And Abraham goes there to that, to that religious site in that, in, in, in that time and he makes an altar. God appears to him. And he goes further to uh, east of Bethel and he pitches his tent and he makes another altar and he says there in Bethel that he, he calls on the name of the Lord. And there at Bethel is the center of Canaanite worship. It's a very holy site. It's, it's a place where others have called on the names of false gods. And Abraham sets up an altar there and calls on the name of the Lord. And as Abraham and Sarah make these altars and and burn something on them, having followed the, the call of God, the smoke rises up. 
off those rocks. And maybe they look and say, Lord, I sacrifice and give you all my life. And I look to you. May my life be going up like smoke and a sweet smell in your nostrils. And I surrender myself once more in thanksgiving to the God who calls me. You know, God's promises leave markings in Abraham's life. God's promises leave markings in Sarah's life. Kind of changes who they are, how they live, how they see things. And here they are by faith, going, setting their minds on things above, looking first to Christ, Colossians chapter 3. And here they are in gratitude. Lord, my life is yours. Whatever that may look like, I surrender to you. Are you building altars in your life to God? Or are you building Tower of Babels? <laughs> are you trying to make your name great, get yourself settled? Or are we first and foremost letting our lives go up like smoke to the living God? Well, as we finish, let me just close with a couple, uh, a little by way of summary. Two minutes to summarize here. The promises are powerful that we hear. All these promises point to Jesus. They're powerful. I want to ask you this morning, again, if I haven't already, What's the role of promise in your life? I mean, seriously, what's the loudest record playing in your brain? What's the loudest voice that you hear in your life by which you're influenced? Is, is, is it promise? Is it, is it the promise of God? Are the promises of God echoing around your, your mind, your heart, your life? Like, that was an old video game with a ball bouncing all over the place. I grew up in 86, 87. Are you surrounded by the promises of God? Are, are, are these the first thing that define you, that set you? These promises of God are powerful. They will turn your life. I mean, you haven't had a chance to think about the promises of God more. Maybe you're just here checking out church for the first time. Go ahead and Google top 10 promises of God in the Bible, and you'll find some beautiful ones that you can really think about. God's promises are, are particular. Have you, have you thought deeply about the place of God's promises in your life? Uh, maybe you've been in the church a long time, and do you find you're coasting? Do you find it just rote and it's become dry for you? Well, I invite you to, to, to look to the particular promises of God. They're not just for anyone. They're, they're for you. They're for me. They're, they're, they're for us Monday to Friday. 5 a.m. to midnight and more. And finally, almost finally, this idea of God's promise being performative. Um, each one of us, is, if you call yourself a Christian, we are called every day to surrender our lives, right? Take up your cross every day. Follow me, Jesus says. But maybe, maybe you've heard a lot about Christianity and you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't with Abraham actually said, go, go. <laughs> And by the grace of God, said yes to Christ. Well, what an opportunity it is on a day like today. Today being the day of salvation. Uh, to surrender your life to Christ. To look to him as your Savior and your Lord. And even to renew that.
Well, in the end, the story isn't about Abraham, and it's not about Sarah. In the end, the promises aren't ones that I make or you make. The story in the end is about Jesus. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who leaves his father's house. Abraham does, but Jesus is the one who leaves, ultimately, his father says. Jesus is the one who bleeds for the human race. Jesus is the one who leaves the ultimate security of heaven for you and for me. Jesus is the one who who ultimately goes in obedience to his father. Jesus is the one who pays the penalty of sin for us. Put it this way, Jesus is the one who loses, Abraham lost his father, his country. Jesus is the one who loses his father so that we could get our father. He's the one who leaves the ultimate security so that we can be adopted into the family of God. Jesus is the one who lives that big life so that we can inherit eternal life. We read in Galatians that we're heirs to the promises of God. Through Jesus Christ. Friends, will you look afresh to Jesus this morning? Will you look afresh to him as the one of promise? Will you believe him? Will you obey him? Will you follow him? Will you worship him? Will you proclaim his name? Will you be marked by him? In Jesus, all God's promises are made and all God's promises are kept. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for an opportunity to walk through this story, walk through this part of your word. We we do confess, Lord, how, how in need we are. And I pray that you might apply to our hearts afresh and anew the hope of Jesus Christ, the goodness of Jesus Christ, the call to follow him, to enjoy every spiritual blessing in him. Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We would bow our lives before Christ the King, the good King, the gracious King. We wish to know afresh what it means to be people of promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.